when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Jerry Chow. He's the Director of Quantum Systems at IBM, meaning he's trying to build the future one qubit at a time. IBM made some announcements this week about its plans for the next 10 years of quantum computing. There are new chips, new computers, and new APIs on that roadmap. Jerry and I got into all of the details of that roadmap, but the important thing to know is that quantum computers could have theoretically incredible amounts of processing power and could entirely revolutionize the way we think of computers if someone could build one that's actually useful. Here's Jerry explaining the basics of what a quantum computer even is. Uh, a quantum computer is a basically a fundamentally different way of computing. It relies on the laws of quantum mechanics, but it just changes how information is handled. So instead of using bits, we have quantum bits or qubits. They, again, follow the laws of quantum mechanics, which means that they have these attributes like superposition, interference, and entanglement. Can't go into the details of how that all works in terms of a computational aspect, but you can think of it as it changes the rules of the math underlying information processing. And it does so in a way that makes it extremely efficient at certain types of problems. Quantum folks like Jerry call regular computers classical computers, which is delightful. And they all work in basically the same way. An iPhone or a laptop or even a fancy NVIDIA GPU encodes data in bits. Bits have two states, which we refer to as zero and one. They're on or they're off. Flip enough bits fast enough, you have a computer. But the laws of quantum mechanics that Jerry just mentioned mean that qubits behave very, very differently. They can be zero or one, but they can also be a whole lot of things in between. Here's Jerry. A qubit or you know, quantum bit is the representation of information for a quantum computer. Instead of a bit, which is a zero and one, you in fact have still two states, a zero and a one, but they can also be in superpositions of, the, of, of zero and one, which means that there's a, there's a probability that when you measure it, it will be zero or one uh, with particular probability. In terms of how we physically build these, you know, they're not switches anymore. They're not transistors, right? But they're actually 
elements that have quantum mechanical behavior. In the case of what we build at IBM, we use superconducting circuits to basically build these quantum levels into you know, metal on, on the substrate. One of my favorite things about all this is that in order to make these new quantum computers work, you have to cool them to within fractions of a degree of absolute zero, which means a lot of companies have had to work very hard on cryogenic cooling systems just so other people could work on quantum chips. That's the reason Jerry calls early quantum computers science projects, but his goal is to engineer actual products that people can use. You'll hear Jerry talk about this, making a useful quantum computer, and the term he uses is utility, which is when quantum computers start to push against the limits of what regular computers can do or even simulate. IBM has been chasing after utility for a while now. It first made quantum computers available on its cloud in 2016, it shipped System 1 quantum computers to partners around the world, and this week it's announcing System 2, along with that roadmap for the future. Now, it's Decoder, so I asked Jerry exactly how he and his team sit down and build a roadmap for the next 10 years of applied research in a field that requires major breakthroughs at every level of the product. It turns out it's a meeting, a very complicated meeting. But if the plans from that meeting pan out, the future of computing will change dramatically. Oh, and we talked about Ant-Man. It's a fun one. Very few people sit at the bleeding edge of technology all day, like Jerry. Okay, Jerry Chow, Director of Quantum Systems at IBM. Here we go. Jerry Chow, you are an IBM Fellow and Director of Quantum Systems. Welcome to Decoder. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. There's quite a lot to talk about, (laughs) uh, quantum computing in general, where it is. But you've got some news to announce today, so I want to make sure we talk about the news right off the bat. What is going on in IBM Quantum? We have our annual Quantum Summit coming up. It's where uh, we basically invite our network of members and users to come, and uh, we talk about some of the really exciting news. And so what we're announcing this year is actually uh, we have a really exciting upgraded quantum processor that we're talking about. It's called the IBM Quantum Heron. Uh, It has 133 qubits. It's the most highest performance processor that we've ever built, and it's going to be available for users to access via our cloud services. We're also launching IBM Quantum System 2 and introducing this as a new architecture for scaling our quantum computers into the future. We're also talking about a 10-year roadmap looking ahead. We at IBM Quantum like to sort of call our shots, tell everyone what we're doing, right? Because that keeps us honest, keeps everyone in industry on the same benchmark of seeing where where progress is. Uh, And we're expanding that roadmap, which we actually first introduced it a couple of years ago and have hit all our milestones thus far. But we're extending it out to 2033, pushing forward into this next realm where we see really we want to drive towards pushing quantum computing at scale. So you've got a new processor, you've got a new computing architecture in System 2, you've got a a longer roadmap. Just put that in context for me. We've been hearing about quantum computing for (laughs) quite a long time. I have stared at a number of quantum computers and been told this is the coldest (laughs) piece of the universe that has ever existed. It's been very entertaining, at the very least. We're only now at the point where we're actually solving like real problems with quantum computers, right? We're not even at the point of solving real problems yet. Not even yet. Not yet. But we are really excitingly, just this past year, Mm -hmm. uh, at the point where we're calling this utility-scale quantum computing. Yeah. Where using 100-plus qubits, so we used a processor earlier in the year called Eagle, 
where we were able to look at a particular problem that you couldn't really solve with brute force methods using a classical computer. But that also, it challenged the best classical approximation methods that are used on high-performance computing. So what's interesting there is that now the quantum computer becomes sort of like the benchmark. You almost need it to yeah. like verify whether your approximate classical methods are working properly. That just sort of just happens when you go over 100 qubits. Like at 100 qubits, things sort of all change that you just can't use, say, GPUs or any kind of regular <laughs> classical computers to simulate what's going on accurately. This is why we're in this phase where, you know, we call it utility scale because there's going to be this back and forth between using a quantum as a tool compared with what you can still potentially do in classical. But then there's a long road there that we're going to try to drive value using the quantum to get towards quantum advantage. Yeah. I think the word utility there is always, I guess it threw me off, right? Yep. It's, this is the branch point where the problems you solve with a quantum computer start to become meaningfully different than the problems you could solve with a regular computer. That's right. We sort of see this really as an inflection point, right? That there's a lot of industries that use high-performance computation already. And they are looking at very, very hard problems that, you know, use like the Oak Ridge supercomputers and whatnot. And now quantum becomes an additional tool that opens up a new lens for them to look at a different area of compute space that they weren't able to look at before. So IBM has a huge program in quantum. The other big companies do too, Microsoft, Google, what have you. They're all investing in this space. Does this feel like a classical capitalist competition, right? <laughs> We're all racing forward to get the first product to market. Is it a bunch of researchers who know that there's probably a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, but we're nowhere close to it yet, so we're all kind of friendly. What's the vibe? I'd say that it's a it's a very exciting time to, to be yeah. in this field. Like, how often do you get to say you're building from the ground floor of a completely new computational architecture, right? Yeah. Something that is, you know, just fundamentally different from traditional classical computing. And so, yeah, I have to say that there's certainly a lot of groundswell. There's a lot of buzz, sometimes a little too much buzz, maybe, right? <laughs> but but also, you know, I think from the perspective of competition, it helps drive the industry forward. Yeah. Right. We at IBM have been at the forefront of computation for decades. And so it's in our blood, the ideas of roadmaps and pushing, you know, the next big development, the next big innovations in computation have always been, you know, something that is just native to IBM. And quantum is no different. And so, you know, we've been in the game with quantum since the early theoretical foundings for probably 30 years, 30 plus years, right? But now we're really starting to bear a lot of that fruits in terms of building the architectures, building the systems, putting out the hardware, developing the framework for how to make it usable and accessible. Let me give you just a, a much dumber comparison. Mm -hmm. We had the CEO of AWS on the show, Adam Slivsky. AWS is like furiously competitive with Microsoft Azure and Google Cloud, right? They are trying to take market share from each other and they do a lot of innovative things to like make better products. But the end goal of that is taking one customer away from Google. You're not there yet, right? Like there's not market share to be we're moved not, around I, yet. Certainly not at that scale. Right. I mean, we're at the point but, uh, where... But are there like quantum customers that you compete for? There's certainly a growing... Okay. Uh, quantum community, right? Yeah. So, like, just to give you an example, <laughs> it's right? Like, a, it's not a customer. It's a. They're like people who are interested. There are people that are interested across the board, like from developers to to students to 
Fortune 500 company, we have a lot of interest, right? So just as an example, we first put systems on the cloud mm-hmm. in 2016. We put a very simple five-qubit computer, <laughs> five-qubit quantum computer on the cloud. It reflected a, a real sort of fundamental shift in how quantum could be approached. Before, you had to be sort of a physicist. You had to be in a laboratory, turning knobs. You're like taking data. You're running like physicist code. You're not programming a computer. Wow. We developed that. Shout out to physicists. Well, I'm a physicist. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't want to see my code. (laughs) But the whole point is that we developed a whole framework around it to actually deploy it and to make it programmable. And, you know, think about the early days of computers and all the infrastructure you needed to build in terms of the right sort of assembly language and, you know, compilers and the application layers all above that. We've been building that for the last seven years since that first launched. And in that time, we've had over 500,000 users of our platform and of our services. The reason I ask this question is I'm, I'm always curious how things are structured and how decisions are made. That's really what we talk about on the show. And there's a forcing function that comes when it's a business and there's a growth path. Quantum seems very much like one day it will be a huge business because it will solve problems that regular computers can't. Mm-hmm. But right now it's on the very early part of the curve where you're investing a lot into R&D mm-hmm. on an aggressive roadmap, but you're nowhere close to the business yet. I would say that we're knocking on the door of, of business business mm-hmm. value, right? Like the, And looking for that business value. Because especially when we're in this realm where we know that it can be used as a tool pitted against the best classical computers, there's something there to be explored. Yeah. A lot of times, even in with traditional computers, right? There's very few sort of proven algorithms that are where we drive all the value. A lot of the the value that gets driven, in fact, is done through heuristics, through just trial and error, through having the tool and using it on a particular problem. And so that's why we see this you know, fundamental game changer of this inflection point going towards utility scale systems of over 100 qubits as now this is the tool that we want users, right, to actually go and find business advantage, find the problems that map appropriately onto these systems for exploration. So put that in the context of IBM. IBM's a huge company. It's over 100 years old. It does a lot of things. This is the most cutting-edge thing probably IBM is doing, I imagine. I'm, I'm guessing you're not going to disagree with me, but it feels like the most cutting-edge yes, thing that most of the big absolutely. tech companies are doing. Mm-hmm. How is that structured inside of IBM? How does that work? We're IBM Quantum within IBM Research, right? Okay. So IBM Research has always been sort of the organic growth engine for uh, all of IBM, right? It's where a lot of the innovative uh, ideas come in. But overall, a particular strategy within IBM and IBM research is that it's not just we're doing research and then we're going to do development mm-hmm. and then it's going to go in like this very sort of linearized product journey. It's all integrated together as we're moving forward. And so therefore, you know, we have the opportunity within IBM Quantum that we're developing products, we're putting it on the cloud, we're integrating with IBM Cloud, we're actually pushing these things forward to build that user base, build that groundswell before, say, you know, all the various different technology elements are finished, right? So that's sort of this agile methodology of building up this from the ground up, but also getting it out, you know, early and often to drive excitement and to, you know, really build up the other parts of the ecosystem. So how is IBM Quantum structured? How does that, how many people is it? How is it organized? So we don't speak explicit numbers, but we have, you know, several hundred people. 
And then, you know, we have parts of the team which are focused on the actual hardware elements all the way down to the actual quantum processor, right? And the system around it in terms of making those processors function by cooling it down in the cryogenic system, talking to it with control electronics, uh, talking to it with classical computing, right? So all, all needs to tie together. Then you have uh, software development teams. We also have a um, cloud and services team that you know helps to deliver our offerings as a as a service. And then yeah, we have applications teams looking at the next algorithms, the next novel ways of making use of our quantum services. And then we also have teams that are more outward looking for business development, uh, trying to drive adoption, working with various clients to you know engage in in the problems of their interest. Uh, we also have a, a part of our team which runs an offering called the Quantum Accelerator, working directly. It's like a consulting uh, arm, working with the clients to to get quantum ready, start understanding how their problems can be impacted by, by quantum computing and start using the systems. Is that all flat? Every one of those teams reports to you or is <laughs> no, there no, structure no. in between? No, so all those different ones report yeah. to our all report to our vice president of, mm-hmm. of quantum computing, which is Jay Gambetta. I take care of the systems part, basically the, the wrapping of the processor and yeah. how it runs, executing problems, right, for for the users. That's the, that's the piece that I own. There's a tension there. I mean, it sounds like IBM is designed to, to attack this tension head on, right, which is we're doing a bunch of pure research in cryogenics to make sure the <laughs> quantum computing can run because it has to be really cold to run. Then there's a business development team that's just off and running, doing sales stuff. And at some point, they're going to come back and say, we sold this thing. And the cryogenics team is going to say, not yet, right? Like, that is every business has a problem like that. When you're in pure research mode, mm-hmm. the not yet is like a real problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. How often do you run into that? I mean, we have a very good uh, strategy across the team, right? We know what our sort of core services and core product that we have is, right? And also, we have a roadmap. The concept of the roadmap is both great for the R&D side, but also great for the client perspective, Mm -hmm. business development angle view of seeing what's coming next, right? From the internal side, we know, well, we've got to continue to drive towards this, and these are our deliverables, and these are the new innovations, right, that we need to do. In fact, in our new roadmap that we're releasing, we have that separated, both a development roadmap, which is more product-focused and more like, you know, what the end user's going to get and client's going to get, and we have an innovation roadmap to show those things which, you know, we're still going to need to turn the crank and figure out what feeds in, right? Yeah. I often say, like, the roadmap is our mantra, and it really is sort of our calling card for both internally and externally, right? Like not many people really show a lot of detail in their roadmap, but it serves as a really guiding tool for for us all. I was looking at that roadmap, and it is very aggressive. We're at Heron. There's many birds to come, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Yep. And the goal is that a truly functional quantum computer needs thousands or millions of qubits, right? We have a transition towards what we're calling quantum at scale, right? Yeah. Which with, I think what you're referring to is like when you will get to the point where you can run quantum error correction, correct for all the errors that are underlying within these qubits, which are noisy. People throw around that number millions qubits in a way that almost drives fear into the hearts of people. <laughs> <laughs> One actually really exciting thing that we've done this past year is we've developed a set of novel error correction codes that brings down that resource count a lot. So actually you need potentially hundreds of thousands of qubits, 100,000 qubits or so to um, build a fault tolerant quantum error correction based quantum computer uh, of a particular size to do some of those problems that we're talking about at scale. 
And that's part of the roadmap too. So that's when we're looking at further to the Blue Jay system in 2033. So, you know, there's certainly a number of birds to, to get there, <laughs> right? Uh, but we have concrete ideas for the technological hurdles mm-hmm. to overcome to get there. So that's the goal, right? You're going to get to some massively larger scale than you are today, orders mm-hmm. of magnitude, mm-hmm. right? Today, the chip has 133 mm-hmm. qubits. You need to get to thousands. Some people terrifyingly are saying millions. Part of your strategy, right, is linking the chips together mm-hmm. into these more modular yep. systems yep. and then putting control circuitry around them. Yep. You know, I'm a person who came up in the, what you might call the classical computing environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's very familiar. Yeah. This is a very familiar strategy. Yeah. We're just going to do more cores. Like, that's what that looks yeah. like to me. Lots of companies have run up against a lot of problems here. Like, in that part of the world, there's just Moore's Law. Mm-hmm. And we sit around talking about it all day long. And NVIDIA, maybe, and TSMC have gotten over it this time. And Intel has struggled to get the next process node and increase the mm-hmm. transistor density. Is there an equivalent to Moore's Law and quantum that you are thinking about? Our roadmap is kind of showing that type of progression. Right. The, the, right? I, like, I look at that roadmap like how and you're we're like, scaling, right? you are definitely <laughs> assuming yeah. a number of breakthroughs yes. along the way. Yes. In a way that Intel just assumed it for years and years and they achieved it. Yeah. And, and they kind of hit the end of the road. Even to where we are today with Heron, and actually, you know, complementary to Heron this year, we actually also already built a 1,000 qubit processor, Condor, which its explicit goal was push the limits of how many qubits could we put on a single chip push the limits of how much architecture could we put in an entire system, right? How much could we actually cool down in the dilution refrigerators that we know today, the cryogenic refrigerators that we have today? Sort of push the boundaries of everything to understand where things break. And if you look at the fairly early part of our roadmap, the birds are there with various technological hurdles that we've already overcome to get towards this thousand qubit level. And now those next birds that you see in the rest of the innovation roadmap are again, there are different types of couplers, different types of technologies that are those technological hurdles like you bring up in semiconductors that allow us to bridge the gap. Are they the same? Is it the same kind of, we need to double transistor it's, density or is it a different set of challenges? They're different, right? Yeah. Because, I mean, again, with this sort of modular approach, there's some that are like, well, how many can we place into uh, a single chip? How many can we place into a single package? How many can we packaged together within the system. So they all require slightly different technological innovations within the whole value chain. Mm-hmm. But we don't see them as not doable. Right? We see them certainly as things that we, we will handle over the next few years. Um, we're already starting to test linking between two packages vi- via a cryogenic cable. This is towards our Flamingo demonstration, which we're playing for next year. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about how Literally how, in terms of materials and substrates and manufacturing, IBM makes a quantum computer. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. 
go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Jerry Chow talking about how you even make a quantum computer. Do you get to leverage any of the things that are happening on the process side with classical computers? Oh, yeah. Yeah. TSMC hits three nanometers and you get to pull that forward or is that different? Not so explicitly Mm -hmm. to sort of the newest stuff that's happening today in, in semiconductors. I mean, but, you know, IBM has been in the semiconductors game for many, many decades, right? And a lot of the work that we've achieved with even achieving 100 qubits with Eagle a couple of years ago was because we had that deep-rooted semiconductor background. So just to give you an example, at 100 qubits, the challenge is how do you actually wire to 100 qubits in a chip? Well, you have the standard thing you do in semiconductors is you go to more layers. But you, it's not so easy to do that just <laughs> in, quant- in these superconducting quantum circuits because it might mess up the qubits. It might cause them to to decohere, right? But we found because of our know-how with packaging, we found the right materials. We found the right way of using our fabrication techniques to implement that type of multi-layer wiring and still talk to these 100 qubits. We evolved that further this past year to actually get to 1,000. And so that type of semiconductor know-how is just ingrained and something that, you know, is, I'd say, you know, the decades of experience matter. So you're going to build the next generation quantum computing chip, Heron. It's got 133 qubits. How is that chip manufactured? To build the next generation quantum computing chip, we rely on advanced packaging techniques that involve multiple layers of of superconducting metal to package and to wire up various superconducting qubits. With Heron, we're also using a novel tunable coupler architecture, which allows us to have world record performing uh, two-qubit gate qualities. And all this is done in a, in a sort of standard fabrication facility right? that we have at IBM and package up this chip and, and we have to cool it down into a cryogenic environment. So silicon goes in one side of the building, <laughs> Heron comes out the other? Uh, I mean, certainly more steps than that, right? <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's this know-how of how to do it properly to have high-performing qubits which we've just built up, you know. Yeah. Tell and, me, explain to me what a high-performing qubit is. Yeah, so like the tricky thing with these qubits, what's funny is that, you know, people talk about qubits, they think that they all, I mean, there are different ways of building qubits. There's the people who use ions and atoms and, and electrons and things like that. But ours are actually just metal on a substrate. <laughs> They're circuits. They're much like the circuits that you might see when you look inside of a standard chip. 
The problem with these circuits is that you can build, so you can basically arrange them in a certain way and use the right materials and you have a qubit that, in this case for superconducting qubits, not going into too many details, but it resonates at five gigahertz. If you choose the wrong materials, the lifetimes of these qubits can be extremely short. So when we first started in the field of building superconducting qubits in 1999, superconducting qubits lasted for maybe like two nanoseconds, five wow. nanoseconds. Today, we've gotten up to close to a millisecond, hundreds of microseconds to a millisecond, already numbers orders of magnitude longer. But that took many years of development. And at the point of a few hundred microseconds, we're able to do all these complex operations that we've been talking about to push this sort of utility scale that we discussed earlier, right? So that know-how to increase that lifetime comes down to engineering, comes down to understanding the core pieces that generate loss in the materials. And that's something that we certainly have uh, expertise at. Tell me about the industry at large, right? So IBM has one approach. You said you're using metals on a substrate. Yep. You're leveraging all of the semiconductor know-how that IBM has. When you're out in the market and you're looking at all your competitors, Microsoft is doing something else. Mm-hmm. Google's something else. Mm-hmm. Go through the list. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. are the approaches and what do you think? Yeah. how do you think they're going? When we think about competitors, you can think about sort of there's the platform competitors of who's mm-hmm. building on the, the services. But I think what you're pointing to more is the, the hardware side, yeah, right? The and, approaches. And, and, and the approaches. Uh, when it comes down to it, right, there's a simple set of metrics for you to compare the performance of the quantum processors. It's scale. What number of qubits can you get to and build reliably, right? Quality. How long do those qubits live for you to perform operations and 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 calculations on at speed? So how quickly can you actually run executions and problems through these quantum processors? And that speed part is something where it's an interplay between your quantum processor and your classical computing infrastructure because they talk to one another. You don't control a quantum computer without a classical computer. And so you need to be able to sort of get your data in, data out, and process it on the classical side. So scale, quality, speed, our approach is super connecting qubits. To the best of our knowledge, we can hit all three of those in a very strong way, right? Scale pushed up to over 1,000 qubits. We know that we can build up to 1,000 qubits already with the technologies that we built. From the quality, Heron, which we're releasing, has the best gate quality. So the gates are the operations, the, the gate qualities that have been shown across a large device. And then speed, in terms of just the execution times, you know, we're on the order of microseconds for some of the clock rates, whereas other approaches can be, you know, a thousand times or orders of magnitude slower. What are the other approaches in the industry that you see and where are they beating you and where are you ahead? There's trapped ions, right? Trapped ions is basically they're using like molecular ions like uh, cesium and, and, and the things that you might use for clocks, right? Uh, atomic clocks. They can have very good quality. In fact, there's some some results that have you know tremendous performance across a number of those types of trapped ion qubits with in terms of uh, their their two qubit gate qualities, but they're slow, right? In terms of just the clock rates of getting the, your operations in, getting your operations out, uh, you need to do operations to sort of recycle the ions. Sometimes that's sort of where I'd say has a downside. I'd say right now, superconducting qubits and trapped ions are the most the other approaches that have the most prominence at the moment that 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 you see have been put out in terms of uh, usable services. 
Uh, atoms have also emerged. Or, I mean, it's very similar to the trapped ions. They use these fun little things called uh, optical tweezers to hold atoms into little arrays. And, you know, there's some exciting results that have been coming out from various atom groups there. But again, it comes down to that speed. Anytime you have these actual atomic items, either an ion in or an atom, your clock rates end up, yeah. end up hurting you. All right, let me make a comparison to semiconductors yeah. again, because that's, yeah. I think, what I'm familiar with and what the, the audience is familiar with. So in semiconductors, there was, like, multiple pattern lithography that was, like, everyone chased it for a minute, mm. and it hit an end state. And then TSMC had bet really big on EUV, and that let them push ahead. And Intel had to make a big shift over there. You're looking at your roadmap. You're doing superconductors, cryogenics, metals on substrates. And over here, some guys are doing optical tweezers on atoms. Is there a thought in your head like, oh, we better keep an eye on this because that might be the process innovation that we actually need? I mean, I mean, I think overall, you know, in the landscape, we're always keeping track of what's going on. Yeah. Right? You're always seeing sort of what are the latest innovations in, in, in the various different technologies. Um, Is that even a, like a good comparison, like to semiconductors in that way? I would say the difference there is like the whole sort of systems are completely different. Yeah. That the architectures are not so compatible. You know, I mean, I, at some level with your with your nodes of your semiconductors, there might be certain kinds of know-how that, that translates, right? Yeah. How you route and layout or something like that. Maybe, you know. And here above a certain layer, there's also going to be commonality in terms of like the, the compute platform, how the quantum circuits are generated and uh, the software layers or might, might be similar, but the actual physical hardware. The qubit. Are very like it, it feels like the thing we're talking about is yeah. like, how do you make a qubit? Yeah. Yep. And like, it's not settled yet. Like well, you have an approach that you're very confident in, but it, there's not like a winner in the market. I yet. mean, we're pretty confident. <laughs> we're pretty confident in superconducting qubits. It's how we. It's why we're able to. Fair pro- enough. It's I'm why just we're able to prognosticate yeah. ten years forward, right? Yeah. That 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 we see the direction we're going, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, to me, it's more that there's going to be innovations within that are going to continue to compound right. over those ten years that might make it even more attractive, right? For as as time goes on, and that's just the nature of technology. So you've got to make decisions on maybe the longest timeline of anyone I've had on the show. It's, it's always the chip people who have the longest timelines. Uh-huh, 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 yeah. I talk to social media CEOs yeah. and it's like t- their timeline is like five minutes from now. <laughs> like, what are we going to ban today? Yeah. It's like, that's the timeline. Yeah. I talk to chip folks and your timelines are decades, right? You you just casually mentioned a chip you're going to ship in 2033. <laughs> that's a long time from now. How do you make decisions on that kind of timeline? There's the near-term stuff, obviously, Right. And the roadmap sort of, again, serves as that guide. And that roadmap is constructed so that all these various things do impact that long-term delivery. But So wait, when you're sitting in the roadmap meeting, just walk me through, what does the quantum computing roadmap (laughs) meeting look like? You're all in a conference room. Are you at the whiteboard? Like, paint the picture. Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, uh, you know, we we have a number of us who are sitting there. We certainly know that we have certain types of technical foundations that we know that we need to include into these next generation chips and systems. For this roadmap, we said, we know at some point we need to get quantum error correction into our roadmap. With that uh, technical lead, we know, okay, what are the requirements? So first we said, okay, let's put it here. Now let's work backwards. It says that we need to do this innovation and this innovation by this date and this other innovation in the software stack or whatever by this date. And then we say, oh, shoot, we ran out of time. Well, let's move back a little bit. 
And so, you know, we do we do a little bit of that sort of planning, right? Because we also want to do it so that, like, we want to lay out this roadmap that we also we often call it like a no regrets decision. So we don't want to do things that are just for the near term. We want to really pick strategies that give us this long-term path. It's why we talk about utility scale so much in terms of like what we could do with herons and soon flamingos. But everything that we want to build on top of what we can do there will translate to what we can do when we get those systems at scale, including error correction. And in terms of the roadmap planning, we're not done, by the way, right? Yeah. We have this overall framework for the 10-year roadmap, and then we need to refine. We've got a lot of details still to come, right, to work on in terms of like, what are those things that need to be worked on across the software layer, the compiler layer, right? The control electronics layer, and, and certainly at the processor layer. Is there commercial pressure on this, right? Again, this is a lot of cost at a big public company. Is there, like, is the CEO of IBM in that room saying, when's this going to make money? Like, move it up? <laughs> Look, I think the point is, you know, our mission is to bring useful quantum computing to the yeah. world. I've been working in this area for, like, you know, 20 years now, and I've just... We've never been like this close to being able to build something that is driving real value, right? And so I think, you know, when you look at our team, we are all aligned along that mission that like we want to drive this to something that we started with just getting out there in the cloud in terms of building the community. Now we fundamentally see this as a tool that will alter how users are going to perform computation, right? And so there has to be, and I expect there to be value there. And, you know, we have seen the, you know, we know, we've seen how, like, the HPC community has has progressed. And we've seen how supercomputing has, I mean, you can see what's happening with the uptake of, of AI and everything. Yeah. That we build it, we'll build the community around it, we'll drive value. Yeah. Let's talk about AI for a second, because this is a really good example of this. AI demand is through the roof. Mm -hmm. The industry is hot. We'll see if the products are long-lasting, but there seems to be real consumer demand for them. And that has all translated into a lot of people want a lot of NVIDIA H100 chips, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very narrowly focused on one kind of processor. Do you see quantum systems coming into that zone where we're going to run a lot of AI workloads on them? Is so that the, the way that I... Like future AI yeah, workloads. It, you know, we're not at the point where the quantum computer is this commodity item that we're just buying yeah tons of you know tons of chips you're not fabricating millions of these chips but we are going to build this uh, supercomputer based off of quantum computing which is going to be exquisitely good at certain types of tasks and so the framework that i actually see is that it's going to be so like already now you're going to have your ai compute clusters and the way that people run workloads today, I'm sure they are running some parts on their regular computers, on their own laptops, but parts of the job get fed out to the cloud, to their hyperscalers, and some of them are going to use the AI compute nodes. Well, we see that also for how quantum will feed in. It'll be another part of that sort of overall cloud access landscape where you're going to take a problem, you're going to break it down, you're going to have parts of it that run on classical computing, parts of it that might run on AI, parts of it that will leverage what we call quantum-centric supercomputing, right? Because that's the best place to solve that one part of the problem. 
and then it comes back and you got to stitch all the all that together. And so, you know, from the IBM perspective, where we always often talk about hybrid cloud, that's the hybrid cloud that connects all these pieces together. And differentiation is there in terms of building this quantum supercomputer, quantum centric supercomputer within there. So you're a quantum centric supercomputer in the cloud. We've talked a lot about superconducting now. Yes. You need a data center that's very cold. Like you, this does not seem like a thing that's going to happen locally for me ever, unless LK99 is real. Like, <laughs> right? Like, there's this isn't going to happen f- f- any for anyone in their well, home I would say outside this. of an IBM data center for quite some time. I say this. When I was first working in this area, I did my PhD in this area, worked on superconducting qubits. We required these large canisters, these refrigerators, where we need to wheel up these huge jugs of liquid helium and fill them every three days to keep them cold. <laughs> now, that's a physics experiment. Yeah. I mean, there's already been innovations in cryogenics that they're turnkey. You plug them in, they keep, they stay running, they can run for years and maintain your payloads at, at the right temperatures. You know, you're paying electricity, obviously, they're right to keep them cold. But we're seeing innovations there too, in terms of driving infrastructure scale cryogenics, right? Where honestly, we're gonna evolve the data center of yeah. the future. Right, Just like data centers today have evolved to handle increased compute resources needed, we will work hand-in-hand with, with how to build these quantum data centers, and we're, we're already doing that. So we have a quantum data center up in Poughkeepsie, which hosts the majority of our systems, and we're planning on expanding that further. We're going to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the thing that's on everyone's mind right now, AI. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. We're back with IBM's Jerry Chow, talking about how quantum computing and artificial intelligence might affect each other. I think AI has very much complicated the question of what you're allowed to do with a computer chip. Like, the White House just released an executive order about AI, and somewhere in there is the idea that you should not be able to do some things with AI. And I talked to AMD CEO Lisa Sue at the Code Conference, and I said, would you accept a regulation that limits what people can do on an AMD chip? And she said, well, yeah, we, we might have to. Hmm. Right? Well, there might be some stuff we just don't let these computers do anymore, which is very challenging when you're talking about someone's laptop. It is way less challenging when you're talking about a data center. Like AWS can just keep you from doing a workload. IBM, I'm sure, has rules and regulations about what its cloud is capable of doing and what you will allow to be done with its cloud computing. 
you fast forward quantum, right? Like people are worried that you're going to break AES encryption with quantum one day and then like the world will fall apart because the world runs on AES encryption. Are you thinking about that yet? Like there's some stuff we should not allow people to do. And as we build the cloud system, we should make sure we put the controls in place. There's certainly threads of that type of discourse, especially throughout the community. Personally, right, what I see is, well, first thing, the, the encryption one, we already know that there are quantum safe encryption standards. And, you know, a fun thing is, you know, in terms of IBM Quantum, our, I said our mission is to bring useful quantum computing to the world. The other side of it is make the world quantum safe, is we want to actually help clients figure out how to update their encryption standards to those quantum safe ones. They exist. NIST has approved a, a number of them, right? Which um, it's a mainly inertia thing to move the entire industries, move banks, move commerce to adopt those standards. And, you know, that itself is... is I can't get people to stop using four-character passwords. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. That's the challenge. And that's a... It's, it's almost a social challenge that needs to be overcome to, to make that happen, right? But... Removing that, right? Like, if we look across at, like, what you can or cannot do on, on quantum computers, I honestly think we need to just watch what's happening with AI, see what's been done in the past with high-performance computing, right? Again, like, not everybody has a high-performance computer at home, right? And so we expect a, a lot of the sort of frameworks to be very similar. Right? And so my concern about putting this too many safeguards around it early stifling progress, stifling yeah. the development early. And, but this conversation is now happening, I would say, in a much more heated way in the AI space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, like it's like almost like two religions are competing to see <laughs> what the future of AI will be, right? There's just a run as fast as you can, and right. like, we should have more safety. And then this culminated potentially in whatever happened at OpenAI. That's right. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, we still don't know. I don't even know if that's the case, but right, that is one narrative about that chaos that certainly exists. Is there anything like that in quantum? I don't think. Are there are there like quantum researchers or like that person is out of control? We're we're name names. We're <laughs> no, we're not. We're not at that. We're not at that stage yet. <laughs> I say right, but but we are. We you know there are there's there's responsible quantum computing initiatives. There's things that are looking at at it, and I think there's a lot to lean in on in terms of learning from what's happening right now with those AI stories. What's the thing right? outside of just the pure entertainment value? Yeah. What's the thing? about AI accelerationism that you've pulled into how you're thinking about your roadmap and building Oh, yeah. Systems. I mean, it's actually really cool. Something that we're talking about at our community summit, too, is that we're, we've actually brought in some of So we, we have Watson X at IBM, and we actually brought in some gen, gen AI methods to help users program in Qiskit, right? So there's actually an engine that we built there to help users code that we're going to be previewing. And then another thing is that translating problems into the right circuits that can run on physical hardware is a very challenging task. It's, it itself is an optimization task in terms of like, there's a particular problem you want to run, and then my hardware is configured in this particular way. We call that transpilation, how to map one to the other. And our teams actually used AI methods to find basically more optimal paths of that mapping. It's actually really fun in that AI impacts how we can accelerate quantum. There's another flip side, which is we're looking to how quantum can actually boost classification methods for AI, right? So it's, it's, all, it's all tied together in some ways here. 
has that changed your roadmap, the explosion of demand for AI systems? Right? It was a year ago there was not ChatGPT. Now we're sitting at the end of it, and I'm, you know, we're, I'm going to go to CES in a couple of weeks, and ever, everyone's going to tell me that AI is and everything, well, right? I mean, and, I like, the industry just sort of reacts to buzzwords. Has this moved your path at all? This AI transpilation tech thing did come mm-hmm. in all of a sudden, and it's part of our roadmap that we're saying, yeah. okay, we, it's an innovation, and now we want to feed it into something that we want to drive to drive towards product. So, you know, in that, in that sort of micro sense, it has, right? In the more macro sense, I just say that, it's always cool to see just tremendous excitement about computing capabilities. <laughs> and if the buzz stayed more on the AI and let let quantum off the hook for a little bit, it's not so bad. <laughs> wow. The encryption doomers are just like, pay attention to us. Uh, there's some like, there are some problems that quantum has always been promised to solve, right? Uh, molecular behavior, mapping proteins. Some of those problems have been attacked by AI very directly. We, we just had Demis Asabis on the show. Obviously, DeepMind, mm-hmm. they just did proteins. It's done now. You can have it. We're going to walk away. Is there an overlap between where AI is expanding to in terms of the problem set or what it can do that is competitive with what you want to accomplish with quantum? I'm not the foremost expert about like what, yeah. pro- what molecular problems can be solved here, right? But I can at least say that we know that there are certain sizes and certain scales of problems that, in terms of supercomputing resources, push summit, push frontier to its max limits of what uh, users can actually simulate. Again, I don't know how, how much of that can be actually looked at using AI for approximate methods, but even then it still be sort of approximate methods. Right. And here's where quantum is really going to be something that is allows one to look at it differently. When, you, when you're looking at what you have right now, right, you have partners, you have potential customers, you have people interested. What's the largest volume of interest from the community? There's those that are using various materials. For example, Department of Energy, right, Oak Ridge National Lab, those that already use high-performance computing, they are super interested in using our, using our platforms. Boeing actually, right, is, is has been working with us for quite a, quite a bit. There, they're just looking at super tough problems like composites of materials and and layers of materials and how best to arrange them, right? And they have problems with thousands of variables that are tremendous thick, that basically cannot work on classical computers. And we've been working with them to understand how to map their problems into quantum. And then you know you have the financial services industry. You have a number of uh, players there that are, that are looking at, you know, things like portfolio optimization, trying to understand all these things for, yeah. <laughs> it's always portfolio optimization, man. At the end of the day, it's like Boeing's doing some cool shit <laughs> in portfolio optimization. <laughs> so that's always, it's always lurking in the background somewhere. It's fine. They pay the bills. It's like, it's good. You've been talking a lot about the cloud, right? You've got your cloud systems. You've also put system ones on mm. college campuses, how does that work, right? You buy a system one, it's got some qubits in it. Is there a, is there a person rolling the helium up to it? They're still owned by IBM. Okay. They're actually managed services deployed on the premises of the, the client locations, right? So we have one actually that earlier this year is in the, uh, with Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. 
that's probably the most um, interesting place that we've de- deployed a system in that it's in their cafeteria. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> so amazing. People have their morning coffees and eat lunch around it. And, and that's just a self-contained local self- supercomputer. Super so, 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 so you can think of it as a self-contained local managed service that, that, mm-hmm. that they're able to build a network and ecosystem around with their researchers, other partner university institutions that may, may, may want to use it. So that's sort of the idea, right? Like, again, we, we have our main data center and cloud accessible systems, as you had mentioned. And then you have these other ones that you drive sort of regional ecosystems. And we're actually launching a, a European data center around our system over in, in, in Germany uh, next year, right? Because, again, the different locations, people care about how their data is handled. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, you know, you never have to send information overseas and things like that you can sort of so you know at at that level we can sort of build that type of flexibility into how we manage that service in terms of user data and everything part of the news today is system two do you have system one customers who are like oh shit i should have waited (laughs) like how does that work with a quantum supercomputer is there an upgrade cycle yeah there's there's certainly um even so even with even with our system ones we've actually upgraded those over time right and you know Again, with our roadmap, some of them we, in fact, first launched with 27-qubit Falcons. For As an example, we just announced that um, our system in Japan with the University of Tokyo got, got upgraded to a 127-qubit Eagle uh, processor. But, you know, in terms of the infrastructure from System 1 to System 2, this is wholly different, right? Yeah. It's, so System 1 is great in that it, it first showed that we can put these things almost anywhere. Cafeteria, for example. You don't have to be in a <laughs> physics laboratory for them to function. And in the cafeteria, there's the superconducting, supercooled cryogenic yeah. system. Yeah, you, yeah, you can say you have your morning coffee and next to a really, it. really cold uh, <laughs> 15 millikelvin wow. uh, quantum processor. But System 2... Do it's people some, know it's there? Is there like a sign? I think it, it's hard to miss. I mean, <laughs> okay, this, this glass box that uh, uh, is, um, yeah, we, we work actually, the fun story is that we, we work with this vendor, Gopian, that actually handles the glass that encases the Mona Lisa to, to help build those, <laughs> the enclosures for the for the for our systems, right? That's there. cool. All right, um, so system two. Yeah, so system two, though, whole new level of infrastructure, but it does, it's designed to scale. And so that's where certainly upgradability and modularity is inherently built into it. You want to increase the number of processors, incre- increase the cryogenic cooling environment, we can do that. Like Lego, right? Uh, modular blocks. You want to increase the amount of control electronics, we can do that. You want to increase the amount of classical computation to interface with the, the quantum computer, we can do that too. That's the idea behind System 2, that it's really sort of designed for scalability in a modular way within the, in a data center environment. IBM is announcing new chip, new supercomputer system two, new roadmaps. If you're just a regular person and you're looking at the pace of supercomputer development, what should you be looking out for? I'd say that you just got to be looking out at the fact that it's actually not hard to get started and learn about it. There's an entire set of resources that you can go and program a quantum computer tomorrow, right? And the fact that we have this 10-year roadmap and the fact that we're building this ecosystem and driving towards these new generations of chips and systems, we want to develop sort of the developer of the future. And so if you're like at all interested in learning about using a quantum computer and getting involved, 
there's a tremendous opportunity for growth here. We're going to need that because, again, to build an entire industry and to build this as a compute platform that works together seamlessly with today's most high-performance computers is going to require, you know, groundswell of people. So, you know, I to me, you know, you touch so many different people out there. It's like, get out there. You can run and program a quantum computer tomorrow. We have freely available systems to run circuits on. Stop playing around with your LLMs. <laughs> get on the quantum train. That's what I'm taking away from this. Yeah. All right, last very silly question. When you watch the Ant-Man movies, are you just furious all the time? <laughs> uh, I'd say that the, the first few Ant-Man movies with the some of the quantum focus was, was, was interesting. It was cute. But the most recent one where they had an entire civilization inside, <laughs> ooh. <laughs> it's a little rough. That was a little rough. Yeah. All right, Sherry, this is amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Yeah, you're very welcome. Glad to be here. I'd like to thank Jerry Chow for taking the time to be on Decoder. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We're bringing you more episodes of Decoder every week very soon, and I really want to know what you want us to do more of. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I really do read all the emails. Or you can hit me up directly on threads. I'm at reckless1280. We also have a TikTok. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. It's at DecoderPod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on? Oh, Mom. No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower.